All right, is this working? It sounds like it is. Carrie, thank you for those kind words and the prayers. Definitely need them. Um, you know, it was uh, almost 16 years ago, my wife and I uh, were married out in California, and we had an outdoor uh, ceremony. And other than showing up that day, I had one job, and it was to turn on the microphone. And I was just thinking about that sitting there, turn on the microphone. So anyways, and I, I blew it at our wedding. So the preacher had a fairly loud voice, but half the people there didn't hear him. But uh, anyways... Uh, always a privilege to be able to open up God's Word with God's people. And um, today in our journey through Genesis, we are in Genesis 46. The title of my message is Reunion and Separation. And uh, the subtitle, if you will, is Six Aspects of Jacob's Travel to Egypt and Reunion with Joseph that Promoted Separation of His Descendants and Birth of the Nation Israel. So many of us, if not almost all of us, have probably been to a family reunion at one point in our lives. You know, you have family all over the place and people come together and meet at a central location for a few days, a weekend, or maybe even a week. Everybody gets together, has a great time. You give big hugs to your favorite uncles or nephews or whatever it is. And at the end of the reunion, everybody separates and goes back to where they live. So you have reunion and separation. In Genesis 46, we also have reunion and separation. We saw part of the family reunion in Genesis begin last week in Genesis 45, when Joseph finally revealed himself to his brothers who had come back to Egypt several times to buy grain but never recognized him. So we had reunion there. And we're going to have further reunion. I couldn't get rid of the watermarks on that graphic. But nonetheless, we have further reunion today in Genesis 46 between Jacob and his son, his favorite son, Joseph, who he thought he was dead. But in Genesis 46, we also have separation. But it's not like a family reunion where everyone just scatters and goes their own separate ways when the reunion's over. This separation is different Genesis 46 is really the beginning of God's separation of that covenant family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that would ultimately result in the birth of the nation Israel and their separation from the pagan nations around them throughout the Old Testament and even prefiguring the separation that we as the church need to have from the world. And in fact, that separation will continue all the way into eternity. So it's reunion, but it's a different type of separation than your typical family reunion. So let's open our Bibles to Genesis 46. And as you're doing that, a little bit of background. Jacob had a challenging life. There were a lot of ups and downs. He was a deceiver. He was on the receiving end of deception. He was blessed. He had struggles. He was afraid of his brother Esau. Then he reconciled with his brother Esau. And he had 12 sons. And you'd think he would settle down and kind of, after all of that, ride off into the sunset. Well, it didn't really happen that way for Jacob. By the nefarious actions of those sons, who we know the story about what they did with Joseph and then lied to their father by the nefarious actions of those sons, Jacob, the patriarch, thinks his favorite son, Joseph, has been dead at this point for 20 years. And as readers of the Genesis narrative, we know that's not the case. 
And at the end of Genesis 45, Jacob had, or, uh, Joseph had been reunited with his brothers, and he orchestrates a situation to get his whole family down to Egypt where he was. So Joseph, by way of brief review, was a high-ranking official in the Egyptian government, and he was really in charge of the food supply. There was a major famine, as we all know, sitting uh, through the last few chapters of Genesis here. And his brothers had come down to him from the promised land, Canaan, to Egypt to buy grain. They never recognized him. Joseph did recognize them. But eventually, Joseph revealed himself to them and arranged for them to come to Egypt. So if we look at Genesis, turn back one chapter to Genesis 45, actually. I'll just pick it up there to get us into the flow. Genesis 45, Joseph has now revealed himself to his brothers and forgiven his brothers. And this is what he says, starting in Genesis 45, verse 7. God sent me before you, he's speaking to his brothers. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you, brothers, who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father, Jacob, and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come. You and your household and all that you have would be impoverished if you didn't come. And then he transitions back to just speaking straight to his brothers and says, Behold, your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. So by grace, Joseph had been given major favor in the eyes of Pharaoh and the Egyptian government officials, and he had a very high-ranking job, as I said. And Pharaoh, at this point in the narrative from last week, actually orders Joseph to provide for transportation and sustenance and provisions and whatnot for his brothers to go back up to Canaan get dad and the rest of the family, and then come back to Egypt. So Joseph had major favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. And at the end of Genesis 45 from last week, we'll pick it up in verse 25. Then they, the brothers, went up to Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he, Jacob, was stunned Stunned, shocked, his heart went numb. And he didn't believe them. You continue in verse 27. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he, Jacob, saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. So they, think about this for a second. These are the same sons that 20 years earlier came back with the bloody coat and said, sorry, your favorite son Jacob is dead. And now they're coming back and saying, no, he's alive, he's in Egypt. So Jacob being stunned is not really surprising here. This was a very difficult thing for Jacob. Joseph was his favorite son. 
but they, he sees the provisions that were made for them and they may have, they may, the brothers may have elaborated on what Joseph said and I'm sure the Lord had something to do with this. The spirit of Jacob was revived, came back to life, if you will. Then Israel or Jacob said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go see him before I die. So in your handout, I have the theme, and it's very long because remember, in Genesis, especially the story of Joseph, there's so many providential little things that God brings together, and this is another example of them. So the, real, the theme of the sermon is God sovereignly and providentially positioned Joseph to find favor with Pharaoh and to mitigate the effects of the famine that was going on and God also sovereignly caused Jacob to now believe that his son Joseph was in Egypt and alive. And God brought all of that together and those circumstances in order to reunite the family, to separate the family, as we will see, and to preserve the family. So the question is, what circumstances did God bring about to orchestrate this reunion, separation, and preservation of the family? And what we will see are six aspects, this is sort of the subtitle of my message, six aspects of Jacob's travel to Egypt and reunion with Joseph that promoted separation of his descendants and birth of the nation Israel. So in your handout, we are our first heading, the first aspect of Jacob's travel to Israel, uh, to Egypt, is the circumstances of Jacob's departure. The circumstances of Jacob's departure. We're now in Genesis 46. We'll pick it up in verse 1. So Israel, or Jacob, set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. So circumstances of Jacob's departure, the first thing that happens is Jacob worships at a familiar place. Jacob worships at a familiar place. So they set out from the promised land, and before they even leave the promised land, Beersheba, Beersheba is in the south of the land of Israel, and they stop there, and Jacob offers sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Beersheba is a very special place to the family. Abraham and Isaac both worshiped the Lord there on multiple occasions. And Jacob was even uh, left Haran when he went to see Laban and all of that. When he left, he left from Beersheba. This is a special place for the family and where they had worshiped the Lord. And in fact, Yahweh had reiterated the Abrahamic covenant to, on several of these occasions when both Abraham and Isaac had worshiped there. And as evidence of, of now his faith that Joseph may be alive, he didn't know with his own eyes his lying sons were the only ones who told him. So Jacob, by faith, sets out, goes to Beersheba, worships the Lord. Jacob offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And what happens after that is amazing. Next element of the circumstances of Jacob's departure, God's appearance and promises to Jacob at a familiar place. Beersheba is a familiar place to Jacob. And what happens is, after Jacob offers sacrifices to the Lord, verse 2, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he responded, here I am. Does that sound familiar at all? That using someone's name twice with a here I am? 
Well, in Genesis 22, when Abraham was about to plunge the knife into his son Isaac, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. A very significant moment in biblical history. What about in Exodus chapter 3? The angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ from a burning bush says, Moses, Moses. And Moses responds, here I am. And there's more examples. One commentator, Douglas Stewart, in his commentary on Exodus mentions that this type of repetition, the repeating of this name, would have been understood as a term of endearment. God showing his love and care for the one he was calling. And there are other examples in scripture of the Lord using somebody's name twice. To Peter, he said, Simon, Simon. To Martha, he said, Martha, Martha. And of course, on the Damascus road, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So the Lord here in in verse 2 of Genesis 46 is expressing his love and care for Jacob. He appears to him and says, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. And the vision that Jacob has continues. In verse 3, he said, this is the Lord speaking, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Well, why would Jacob have been afraid? Well, When there was a famine in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham decided to go back to Egypt to avoid the effects of the famine. And he decided it would be a good idea to lie about Sarah's identity to Pharaoh and say she was his sister. Well, that didn't go over too well. So there may have been some negative repercussions in Jacob's mind from that incident. In Genesis 26-2, Isaac, when there was a famine was tempted to go to Egypt. That always seems to be Israel's remedy. Go to Egypt. There's safe harbor there. They'll help us. Isaac says, I'm going to go to Egypt. And the Lord appears to him and says, don't go to Egypt. So Jacob likely knew these things and was hesitant to go to Egypt because there was some family history there where going to Egypt was not the best thing to do. But God said, don't be afraid. In this instance, it's my will. Go. As we continue on in Genesis chapter 46, verse 3, not only does he say, I am God, the God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. The Lord adds, for I will make you a great nation there. I will fulfill some parts of the Abrahamic covenant to make you a great nation there in Egypt. And he continues, I will go down with you to Egypt And I will surely bring you up again back to the promised land. And Joseph, your son, will close your eyes. Which is a sort of an illustration for when you die, he will be the one who sort of puts you to rest, so to speak. Now, just a little tiny bit of application here. It's extraordinarily unlikely that the Lord is going to appear to any of us in a vision or any other way but the Lord obviously speaks to us through his word. And he promises to be with his people in difficult circumstances, at the beginning of journeys, at the beginning of trials, things that might tempt us to be afraid and be fearful and have negative thoughts. You know, here it's Jacob leaving the promised land to go to the dreaded Egypt. Another example of this In Deuteronomy chapter 31, this is where Moses is transferring leadership to Joshua 
Because Moses, if you, if you remember, was not allowed to enter the promised land. So he transfers leadership to Joshua in order to go into the promised land, conquer it so that each of the sons of Jacob's families, their descendants, can take over parts of the land. And in Deuteronomy 31.6, Moses is speaking and he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, meaning the Canaanites who are there who you're going to have to wipe out. For Yahweh, your God, is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in, all, in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous for you shall go with this people in the land which Yahweh has sworn to their fathers to give them and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. Yahweh is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Very encouraging verses there in some pretty difficult, challenging situations. And we can apply that in our own lives when we have trials and difficulties coming up. The Lord himself will go before you. He will be with you. In Isaiah 52, it says he will be your rear guard. The Lord has your back. So we can step out in faith like Jacob did here to go to Egypt. So armed with the encouragement and direction straight from the Lord, Jacob heads out from Beersheba and leaves the promised land and heads for Egypt, which brings us to our third part of the circumstances of Jacob's departure, which is Jacob, by faith, leaves a familiar place for an unfamiliar place. We'll pick this up in verse 5 of Genesis 46. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. So Jacob and the family leave Beersheba. They head out with all the on all the provisions and with all the provisions Pharaoh provided for their journey. They enter Egypt. Again, Pharaoh was pleased, and back in Genesis 45, that Joseph's family was going to come. I mean, think about the grace behind that. Think about the favor that Joseph had, how God sovereignly worked in the hearts of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's officials to have Joseph have that much favor. You know, another small point of application, don't underestimate God's ability to work in people's hearts, not only in salvation for, the, for purposes of the gospel, like we heard this morning, but even in the disposition of an unbeliever's heart toward one of his people. You know, we all have difficult things, a job interview, maybe a family reunion, and there's a little friction with an uncle, or maybe it's a sticky situation where you have to confront someone like a neighbor. We can and should pray about those things that God would work in those people's hearts to give us favor. Certainly, we can pray for what we want, but we would obviously pray that the Lord's will would be done regardless of what we want. So don't underestimate God's ability to influence hearts, even of unbelievers. So that is the circumstances of Jacob's departure. 
from the promised land. And at this point in the narrative, remember, we're in the Toledot of Jacob, the generations of Jacob, and we've never really had a cataloging of the names of everyone in the generations of Jacob. Well, in this next section of our, of our teaching here, the second aspect of Jacob's travel to Egypt, we have a survey of Jacob's descendants. We get that list here. All those who are headed to Egypt with Jacob and his sons. And we could spend a ton of time looking at each of the names and kind of seeing if we can figure out how they maybe uh, went on beyond this one chapter here and things that may have happened. But there's two reasons we're not going to do that. One, we don't have time. And two, I am not even going to try to read most of these names. I will butcher them. So we're, we're going to avoid that. But I do want to point out some details that we have here in this section of uh, Genesis 46, verses 8 to 27, the survey of Jacob's descendants. So pick it up in verse 8. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt. So this section from 8 to 25, really, is broken down by the, the sons are listed, but they're organized under the mothers that, that Jacob, uh, they were the mothers of these sons. And then the, the sons would be listed under each mother, and then the son's offspring would be described. So, for example, in the second half of verse 8 and verse 9, it says, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, and then there's some names. I'm not going to try. And in verse 15, we'll see the sons, these are the sons of Leah. So it's organized by mother and the sons are listed. And after each listing of the son, the son's descendants are there. So we have Jacob's descendants introduced, which I just did, my apologies. The next section of the survey of Jacob's descendants is Jacob's descendants through Leah. Leah is one of the mothers, the daughter of Laban. And in verse 15, the sons, well, I'll read the sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The, verse 15, these are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Paddan Aram, with his daughter Dinah, all his sons and daughters numbered 33. And we'll see why that numbering is important. And note that a daughter is mentioned, Dinah, who we've encountered before in the Joseph story, or in the Genesis narrative, excuse me. So the descendants through Leah, there's 33 overall, six sons. The next section is Jacob's descendants through Zilpah. Zilpah was a maid of, is this thing not working? It's cool, okay. Zilpah is a maid of uh, Leah with whom Jacob also had two sons. And one of the interesting things to note, Zilpah here in verses 16 to 18 is her section. In verse 18, it says, these are the sons of Zilpah whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah, and she bore to Jacob these 16 persons. So they're adding up the sons and the, 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 some additional descendants there. And what's interesting in the numbering is under Leah, there were 33. Under Zilpah, who was the maid, there was 16 or basically half. And we'll, we'll point that out, why that might be important in a moment. But continuing on, we have Jacob's descendants through Leah, Jacob's descendants through Zilpah, and we have Jacob's descendants through Rachel, verses 19 to 22. In verse 19, it says, these are the sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel. 
She's the only one who was referred to as a wife there because she was the one Jacob really wanted. She was his favorite. So she gets that special designation. It wasn't said of Leah, not said of the maids. Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife, and that's who she had Joseph and Benjamin, or he had Joseph and Benjamin with. Verse 20 mentions that Joseph has two sons, had two sons in the land of Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim. They were born in Egypt. And in verse 22, it says, these are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. There were 14 persons in all. So that's the Jacob's descendants through Rachel. And we have Jacob's descendants through Bilhah. Bilhah was Rachel's maid who, who Laban also uh, provided uh, with Rachel. Uh, to, and Jacob had two sons with Bilhah, um, Dan and Naphtali. And so the noticeable thing here again is that in verse 25, the, uh, the children or the descendants of Jacob through Bilhah, they were seven persons in all, which is again half of the number for Rachel. So the significance probably simply is that there were chosen wives, if you will, of Jacob who had 33 and 14, Leah and Rachel, and then the maids had seven to indicate sort of their you know, they're lesser prominence, if you will. I don't want to say they're not important, but they're lesser prominence. So that, that was something noticeable. Now, I don't want to belabor all the descendants and everything, but in verses 26 and 27, it is a bit of a summary of the descendants. And I call it Jacob's descendants in or taken to Egypt numbered. So pick it up with me in verse 26. We'll get back into the text more directly here. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. And all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. So there's a couple different counts here. There's a 66 and there's a 70, 66 in verse 26, 70 in verse 27, Full disclosure, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, when he's preaching his long sermon to the religious leaders in Israel, makes reference to this section of Genesis, and his number is 75. Apparently in the Septuagint, the number was 75. So one of the commentators who I think all of us who've been teaching on Genesis appreciate, Kenneth Matthews, says the following. The concluding verses of this section on Jacob's descendants are problematic for interpreters since there are two related but different counts given, 66 and 70, and it is uncertain how the author arrived at the two counts. Now, I read a number of commentators on this, and it's pretty clear that we don't know. You know, there are as many commentators as there are ways to calculate. So we can't be dogmatic about what 66 means and what 70 means and how those counts got there. A couple clues we have from the text that I think are helpful. In verse 26, it says, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt were 66. Jacob doesn't belong to himself. Now, Jacob is, you know, he doesn't belong to himself. And uh, Joseph and his two sons were already there. So that might account for a difference of four between 66 and 70. And in verse 27, it says the sons of Joseph 
who were born to eat it to him in Egypt were two, and all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. Well, Jacob's part of the house of Jacob, so you can add him to that. Joseph and his two sons are as well. So I'm not saying that's the right answer. That's what I looked at this pretty hard, actually, and was going to put up some slides about it, but decided not to. But nonetheless, that may be, and that may account of the diff, uh, for the difference between 66 and 70. So that's the, the Jacob's descendants in or taken to Egypt numbered. Now, before we go away from the survey of Jacob's descendants, just a very brief forward look. So there are verses, it, Genesis 47, 27 mentions the fruitfulness of the Israelites in Egypt. The beginning of the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 1 also mentions this. There's a nice summary in Deuteronomy 10, 22 that I think is helpful for us to start looking forward the significance of the family and as we'll see as we go on in our message here. Deuteronomy 10.22 says, Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now Yahweh your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So that is a reference back to 70 that it was 70 people who started from the descendants of, uh, from Jacob and his sons and their descendants in Egypt, and they became as numerous as the stars of heaven, partial fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And these sons, though, Jacob's sons that are listed in Genesis 46, these families remain important throughout the entirety of the scripture. You know, what tribe was Jesus from? Judah. Anyone know what tribe John the Baptist was from? Levi, I heard it. Someone said Levi. What about Philippians chapter 3 and the Apostle Paul? What tribe was he from? Benjamin. Tribe of Benjamin. So these tribal distinctions, these descent, descendants have significance throughout redemptive history. And we're in the book of Revelation in our evening services right now with Pastor Tom. We were just talking about the 144,000, which are 12,000 gospel witnesses from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. And in fact, in the, end in the eternity in the New Jerusalem, the four sides of the New Jerusalem, if you will, each have three gates, and each one of those gates will have the names of one of the sons of Jacob over them or next to them. So these tribal identities are important throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and it behooves us to study them and keep them in mind. I could go on all day about this, but I won't. It's, it's just fascinating to me. So I wanted to give a little bit of a forward look before we move on because now we're going to get back to Jacob's travel to Egypt and get back to sort of the travel part of the narrative and the, the sort of climax or the, the big reunion that we're going to see here momentarily. So we'll pick it up back in verse 28. The third aspect of Jacob's travel to Egypt is the situation at Jacob's destination. The situation at Jacob's destination. So back to Genesis 46 verse 28. So they've now left the promised land. They've traveled and verse 28. Now he, Jacob, sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. So 
The text doesn't really specify the exact details, but it seems like when the family caravan arrives in Egypt, Jacob sends Judah ahead to find Joseph and say, where exactly are we supposed to go? We know we're supposed to go to Goshen, but how do we get there? We're kind of letting Joseph know that they've arrived and give us, you know, tell us where you want us to go. So that's Joseph's, I should have given this a minute ago, Joseph's guidance to reach Goshen. So they, Judah goes, finds Joseph to get some directions, if you will. And the next slide, I do have a little map here, one of the maps in the back of the Bible um, that shows um, Israel, that area, Canaan. And on the left side, about the middle, you see Egypt right there. And I circled in red, Goshen. And it's hard to make out in the slide, but where it says Egypt, there's a lot of little bluish lines. That's the Nile Delta. That is very fertile, good land for farming and grazing. And Goshen's kind of right alongside of that, but it's separate from Egypt itself. It's separate from Egypt itself. And we'll point out why that's important momentarily. But Goshen was the place in Genesis 45.10 where Joseph said to his brothers, that's where I'm going to have you guys live when you guys come down here. And because it's separate from Egypt, it can also be separate from the Egyptian culture, those polytheistic pagan cultural um, influences that might come out of Egypt if, if Jacob and his sons were intermingled with them. So when the family arrives in Egypt, Jacob sends Judah ahead to let Joseph know, we've arrived Tell us exactly where you want us to go, and they're going to send them to Goshen. The second part of the situation at Jacob's destination is Joseph's preparation to reunite with his father. I got another goofy little picture off the internet showing someone in a chariot. So Genesis 46, 29, beginning of the verse, Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. So once Joseph learns that the family has arrived, he wastes no time. He himself got his chariot ready. I'm sure he had some help since he was an important guy. Joseph's been waiting 22 years to see his father. And so with all the suspense that really has been building because we as the readers have known Joseph's been alive, but Jacob didn't know until now. And so they're kind of heading together. So this is Joseph's preparation to reunite with his father. He loads up his chariot. He's heading to Goshen. Commentators pretty much unanimously agree that there's an element of hurrying or anticipation here. And so Joseph goes out on his chariot to reunite with his father. The fourth aspect of Jacob's travel to Egypt and reuniting with Joseph is the certainty of Joseph's devotion and love. And I could put in parentheses for his father. Verse 29, second half, as soon as he, Joseph, appeared before him, Jacob, he, Joseph, fell on his Jacob's neck and wept on his neck a long time. If there was any doubt that Joseph loved his father, we see here three actions that really, in a sense, are Joseph's perspective of the reunion because it's talking about what he did but they also show his love for his father. First, it's like there's, they appear before each other. It's like you got to think about this in the context of suspense. It's a huge moment, 22 years. Jacob thought his son was dead this whole time. 
Joseph has known as, this, this was going to happen, but he didn't know when. So back in the late 70s, there was this movie called Kramer versus Kramer. It's a fantastic movie from a pure acting and technical standpoint. It's a young family. They have a six-year-old kid, and the mom gets disillusioned, and she basically leaves and abandons the family, and the father starts raising the son. The mother kind of gets her life back together and started some legal proceedings, and there was a situation where they had to uh, basically the father had to let the son see the mom again. And it's in a park and you can see kind of they're separated. The father and the son are kind of coming this way and the mom's this way. And when the father says to the son, it's okay, you can go. The son, and you gotta think Hollywood. There's like violins going and the music in the background. And they were probably only a hundred feet apart, but they made it seem like it took 30 seconds for that whole run to occur. And that kid just bolts and just jumps into his mom's arms, and she embraces him, he embraces her. That's, we need to feel that kind of drama here. I mean, I think the picture's pretty good up there. We need to feel that kind of drama and suspense. It's a big deal. And Joseph falls on the neck of his father, Jacob. It basically means to hug him, and that's what we would expect as a reader after all these years. There was no animosity between them, so it's an expected hug. So we have the sort of presentation before each other. Then they hug. And then he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. So when Benjamin and J uh, Joseph reunited in Genesis 45, Joseph fell on his neck and wept. But it didn't say a long time. And that word in Hebrew, it's kind of like we would use it for still. You're still doing that. You're still trying to make that happen. It's like an extended period of time. It's a continuous thing that's lasting for a little while. So it is packed with raw, genuine, intense emotion and love, indicative of Joseph's devotion and love for his father. There's intense weeping and crying and sobbing that went on for a while. So if there's any doubt about how much Joseph loved his father, this should dispel it. Brief point of application. You know, we are commanded as God's people to love and honor our parents. Honor your mother and father. And we should do that by loving them, telling them we love them, our parents that is, and showing them that we love them. And if for any reason you have fractured relations with family members, especially your parents, make it right before it's too late. I mean, look at that. You want that? That, that is fantastic. So that is Joseph's reaction to the reunion. That's really the certainty of his devotion and love. And upon seeing his son for the first time in 22 years, what about Jacob? So the fifth aspect of Jacob's travel to Egypt is the satisfaction of Jacob's desire. Now, at the end of chapter 45, remember, when Jacob sort of gets that, that enhancement, you know, he gets faith, likely from God and seeing what he saw, he says, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And here in verse 30 of Genesis 46, after that embrace, after that extended period of time where they're just weeping and reconnecting and reuniting, Israel says to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face that you are still alive. Jacob's desire to see his son is satisfied. And that hole 
That must have been in his heart, in his soul, thinking his favorite son was dead for over 20 years. That hole was filled. That hole was healed. Now, I, I was thinking about um, in Luke chapter 2, Simeon, he was a righteous and devout Israelite who was waiting for the Messiah. And when Joseph and Mary, after Jesus' circumcision, brought him to the temple to present him, Simeon was there and saw with his own eyes the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he basically said, I'm good. I can go now. That, that's, that's Jacob's reaction here. I've seen your face, that you're still alive. Now let me die. He was satisfied. He had peace. He had joy. And it's kind of a bookend a little bit, if you will. What did Jacob do at the beginning of chapter 46 when he left the promised land? He worshiped. And here, he doesn't verbalize it, maybe a bit of sanctified imagination, but he's worshiping in his heart. You know, I was going to quote some lyrics for this. There's, even today we sang, um, the Lord is my salvation. There's that, one of the last verses talks about like kind of when your time's coming to an end, you're still rejoicing in the Lord or 10,000 reasons. We sang it last week. When your days are near their end, you're still going to praise the Lord. It's like Jacob was doing that in his heart here. So the satisfaction of Jacob's desire. This is a beautiful moment. This is years in the making. But unfortunately, we have to come back down to earth a little bit. And our sixth aspect of Jacob's travel to Egypt is the separation inherent in Joseph's directions. And we're going to pick this up in verse 31 in a moment. Joseph was a great planner. He was wise. And right here, after this very emotional reunion with his father, he's kind of all business. And here's his instructions. In, starting in verse 31, we'll read the rest of the chapter. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And then, so that's what Joseph's gonna go tell Pharaoh now that his family's arrived. And Joseph continues, he's speaking to his brothers and he says, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? This is what you're gonna say. You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, youth even until now, both we and our fathers. So Joseph basically says, I'm going to go tell Pharaoh that you're here. And this is what I'm going to tell him you do. And when he asks you what you do, this is what you're going to say. And end of verse 34, this is why you're going to say it. That you may live in the land of Goshen. That you may live in the land of Goshen. So... <clears throat> This is this idea of separation now. God's plan and purpose for Jacob and his descendants through Joseph was to secure them good land along the Nile in Goshen for them to dwell there. It's obviously going to protect them from the effects of the famine, but it goes beyond that. Being separate from the Egyptians will protect them from the pollution of the polytheistic pagan uh, Egyptian culture. 
It's going to allow the Israelites to stay together and prosper and thrive together as we know that they will if we continue reading on into Exodus and beyond. And again, in Exodus and beyond, prevent them, prevent the plagues that will come upon Egypt from affecting them because they're not intermingled with the Egyptians. So this is a brilliant plan from Joseph. And there's even one more little nugget that pulls it all together. End of verse 34. For every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Egyptian, Egyptian culture back then was very cultured. It was advanced. They didn't like shepherds. They were, the shepherds were loathsome. That's a pretty strong word, loathsome to the Egyptians. So underpinning Joseph's plan to have the family separated and in a really great place is the fact that they are farmers and shepherds and Egyptians hate that. that. So there, it's easy to sell this, if you will, to Pharaoh. So once again, a brilliant plan from Joseph. And, you know, Joseph, there's a lot in Scripture that we're not. Joseph had, must have received a lot of insight from the Lord because he, he was a God-centered, wise planner. And we should be too. But, uh, but factually, that's where the chapter ends. The family has arrived. They've come to Joseph. Joseph tells them where he wants them to go. Joseph tells them, I'm going to go talk to Pharaoh. Here's what I'm going to say to Pharaoh. When Pharaoh asks you what you do, here's what you're going to say to them and why you're going to say it so you can live in the land of Goshen. And underpinning that all was the fact that Egyptians found shepherds loathsome. So for purposes of application, for purposes of application, there are kind of two levels of application here. One is more of a biblical sort of this, element, this idea of separation. You know, Joseph tells his family how to deal with Pharaoh so that they can live in the land of Goshen, separate and apart from Egyptian culture, so that the Israelites, the sons of Jacob, will not be tempted, as we see Israelites were many times after this, to stray away from Yahweh and worship these other nations' small g gods. You know, one commentator, I love this, and I just want to point out, Bruce Waltke says, Egypt became the womb that God used to form the nation Israel. And we see this idea of separation, not only of the nation Israel in biblical history, we'll see it in the church as well, and I'll point this all out in a minute, we can also apply this personally. So in terms of separation, in Exodus 19, it is said to Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of people who are messengers between God and men and a holy, separate, set-apart nation. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, this is not a command, but Peter is saying to his audience, those churches that he was writing to, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we have in Exodus 19 and 1 Peter, we as the people of God need to be separate, set apart messengers between God and men. We need to be separate, set-apart messengers of the message of the Bible, of the gospel. I was talking about this with Arnold last week where I was telling about my preparation. 
he pointed something out, so I'll give you some credit for this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Pastor Tom mentioned it this morning. As believers, we are new creatures. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He has made us a kingdom of priests and messengers of the, of the gospel to a dying world. And we need to also, to be credible messengers of the gospel, live separate, set-apart, holy lives. One of the implications of being a new creature in Christ is to be spiritually separated from the world. I'm not encouraging anyone to go hike to the top of a 20,000-foot mountain and live in a cave. That's not the deal. We are to be spiritually separate from the world. Turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As we're talking about how do we apply this idea of separation in our lives, separation from the world and the influences of the world, and separation so that we are credible gospel witnesses. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty." We need to be separate from the world the way God is setting up Israel to be separate from the pagan nations around them at the end of Genesis and into Exodus and beyond. We need to be separate from what the world values and pushes. And looking ahead in biblical history, God will continue separating throughout. He actually has been separating the whole time. But God will continue separating throughout history, not only in the church age, but think about it. After Jesus returns, you have the sheep and the goats. You have the wheat and the tares. You have the great white throne judgment, which will eternally separate believers and unbelievers. Revelation chapter 21, referring to the new Jerusalem, which I mentioned a little earlier. The apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says... Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I'm talking about separation still, referring to the new Jerusalem, our Lord Jesus himself, Revelation 22. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates those gates with Jacob's son's names over them, enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. 
So this separation that it really began before Jacob's journey to Egypt, but it really gets highlighted here in Genesis 46. That separation will continue forever. Are you letting unbelievers know that a permanent separation is coming? Letting them know that unless they repent of their sins and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they will be eternally separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. As a kingdom of priests for our holy God, that needs to be our message to the dying, unbelieving world. So that is Genesis 46, reunion of Jacob and his son and really the whole family at this point, and really the beginnings of separation of the nation Israel and Jacob's sons to be a separate, set-apart nation, to be a witness to the pagan nations around them. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. There's some, uh, some table questions on the handout, and uh, certainly enjoy those. If anyone has any questions, feel free to come up afterwards. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you, and Lord, we acknowledge that you have been, in a sense, separating from before the foundation of the world. Lord, you have chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. Lord, that's the message we are hearing as we start talking about the separation of the nation Israel. You are separating them to be holy and blameless, to be witnesses to the world. And you have separated us as believers in Jesus Christ to be witnesses of your gospel to the world. Lord, thank you so much for the suspense in the Joseph story of Joseph and Jacob finally reuniting and allowing us to use that as a platform. You're, you used it as a platform, but allowing us to use it as a platform to discuss the idea of biblical separation from a spiritual standpoint. Lord, I pray that everyone in here who knows you will look at their affinity or hopefully lack thereof for the world and the things of the world. And Lord, certainly if there is any excessive affinity for the things of the world in any of us, Lord. I pray that you would convict us of that and show us how to, to rid ourselves of that. And certainly, Lord, if there are folks in here who do not know you, who have not been reconciled to you through Jesus Christ, I pray that even as we heard in the service this morning, you would do a mighty work by grace in those person's hearts and cause them to turn away from their sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the one who paid the penalty for their sins and the one who lived that righteous life for them so that they can be saved and be in the new Jerusalem with you, rejoicing with your people forever in a way that we probably can't even comprehend.